Good morning. The reading this morning will be from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. That's Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. When they were loading the PowerPoint into the computer this morning, somebody saw the title in this slide and said, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? (laughs) No, we're not going to talk about space aliens this morning. But we are going to talk about something that's really important. And before we do, I want to mention one thing that was pointed out to me. And as we think about uh, what's been happening in Turkey and Syria, uh, that one of the places that's been really devastated is the place that's very familiar to those of us who like to read the book of Acts. The old name was Antioch. And it has been just devastated. Antioch, Luke tells us, is where the disciples were called Christians for the first time. And it's a very important place in our, in our history. Uh, and as we think about that devastation, uh, do what we can to, to help out and especially keep people in our prayers. All right, we are in a series, uh, and we're talking about what we believe. This is what Jay and Miles have planned for this year. And uh, January talked about what we believe about the Bible, and this month is what we believe about God. Now, what I want to do is just take a second here to uh, begin with uh, Paul's visit to Athens. And he tells us how as Paul visited this great world city with an ancient history even at the time that he was there and Paul saw all of the temples and all of the places of worship and all of the statues and shrines uh, it Luke says that his heart was provoked in him and he went to the Areopagus, which is where uh, basically what we think of like city council met and addressed the people. They had invited him to come and to speak. We want to hear about this God that you're talking about because it's not what we're talking about. And so he points out, he said, uh, you know, men of Athens, I perceive in many ways you're very religious. You know, there's just places of worship all over the city. Uh, But as he looked at the many gods that they had, there are many different ideas and concepts of God. But all were very different from, you know, because basically what people were doing uh, and cultures and nations were doing were creating gods, creating objects of worship in their own image. I just zapped out. Okay. Uh, So... Paul tells them that 
you know, God does not live in temples made by, by human hands. You know, he's not served by hands as if he needed anything. Uh, in fact, those gods need people. They don't exist without, without people. And the reality is, and you know, several years ago, Diana and I had the privilege of visiting Athens and Corinth and Ephesus, all these places that had all of these centers of worship. And many of the statues are still there. Not because they are eternal in, this, in the sense of you might think about a god, but because they're just chunks of stone. They're lifeless. We might use the word even inert. They're powerless. And so Paul says, you know, I, I found this altar that you have to the unknown God and what you ignorantly worship. I now am going to tear, tell you about. And he begins to speak about a totally different concept of God. Uh, a God who is, very quickly he introduces as a God who is a creator, a God who is a life giver, a God who is sovereign. Uh, one of the words that I like to use is a God who is transcendent. That means that he is over everything. You know, the, their gods were basically superhumans. They were petty. They were cruel. They were nothing. And he's now talking about the God we understand. So, as he talks about this new concept of God and about the care that God has given, we talk about the province. Uh, he says, God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For as even one of your own prophets has said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, think about what this is doing to the Athenians as they hear this. And so, how, where, can a human being find God? You know, I kind of wanted to, to kind of toy with this idea. Do, you, do we find God through our feelings, through our experiences? We just grope in the dark. We stumble around and hope for the best. Maybe we'll find him. You know, there's a concept, you know, there are different concepts of God, as I mentioned. And, and there was one that I remember hearing about when I was young, and I thought it was interesting. The idea was, was what is called the, the absentee landlord, that God started everything and then he left. And he is not involved in the creation. He's unreachable and untouchable. And so you can never know. That's why some people claim to be agnostics. They're saying they don't know there's a God. And so uh, from that perspective, Paul now says, let me tell you about something different. And what's really interesting is he, he, he brings a point in here that is t total nonsense to the Athenian philosophers to whom he's speaking. 
he speaks about the resurrection. You know, the God, he says, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. And so to people who bow and worship and serve stone idols, this is absolutely ridiculous because stone and precious metals and jewels don't have any power to do doodly squat. Sorry for the term, but you know. Uh, they don't, can't do anything. And now he's talking about a God that can raise the dead? Right. And so it says many of those who are listening to him started to laugh. There are a few people that, wait a minute, that's, that's different. We want to know more about this God. What Paul is talking about is the gospel, which in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says is very simply that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And he says this is the message he's writing to the Corinthians, which we preach to you, which you receive, by which you are saved, unless you believed in vain. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. You notice that resurrection keeps coming in here. As they're talking even to people who are, whose background is in paganism and in the worship of idols. And then Paul adds that Jesus appeared to many witnesses. Now, think about this, that the basis, basic message of the gospel, number one, was contained in prophecy. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in, in my lesson. That it was revealed and written centuries before that Christ would die and that he would be raised from the dead. But then, witnesses. So, you think about it. You know, Paul is appealing to, to what we would call history and to prophecy and the testimony of these people who saw Jesus after he'd been crucified and, and then raised from the dead. So for these Athenians, the message can be tested, can be verified and validated. That these prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. So it's not about us finding God. You know, not about us groping in the dark, hoping we might stumble across God. But it is that God has revealed himself. I, I always like to use the, the analogy of being in a completely dark room. How do you know that somebody else is in that room? Well, short of stumbling on them, they reveal themselves. They tell you, I am here. I don't know about you, but I've had a few experiences in my life where I've been in a situation where I, I knew that somebody didn't know I was there. And I thought, uh-oh. I have to be very, very careful because I'm going to scare the daylights out of this person. And so I have to find a way to reveal my presence. You let them know they are. Well, God knows that we cannot find him through our, our physical senses. We can't find him through our experiences. So he has revealed himself. He's spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament. He has, he acts has acted and continues to act in human history, but it's beyond our ability to discover him.
So, I want to touch on an example here, going back a couple weeks ago to the idea of prophecy, because I think this is one of the really great prophecies of the Old Testament. All right, we read a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 7. And I had to choose just a short snippet here. I would skip kind of the first part of it. Okay, so we're going back about eight centuries before Christ. Think about that. Nearly 800 years before Jesus. And we're focusing on Judah down there at the bottom. That's why I put a circle on it. Uh, And the king of Judah is named Ahaz. Ahaz is a descendant of David. Remember God made the promise that David will never have uh, someone who is not on the throne? Well, Ahaz is from that lineage. Now, Ahaz is a jerk. Ahaz is evil. He's not a good man. But Ahaz is from the tribe and descended from David. So, up in the upper right, you see the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria was the superpower, and there's, this is explained more in the, uh, the sermon backgrounder. But Assyria is a kingdom that is enlarging and getting bigger. And so the kings of Israel, King Pekah, and the king of Aram, or Syria, King Rezin, are afraid of Assyria, and they want to wage war against Assyria, and they want Ahaz to join them. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to go fight Assyria. I'm not stupid. And so they say, well, then we're going to come invade you, and we're going to throw you out, and we're going to put somebody on your throne that's going to go with us. And so Rezin and Pekah's armies come down to attack Jerusalem. And Isaiah says that the people of Judah... And Ahaz were trembling in fear. They're afraid. I mean, what do you do when you think you're about to get totally devastated? And so Isaiah comes to him. And that's what Isaiah 7 is about. And so in the face of all their fear, Isaiah says from God, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That, that, that seems very simple, doesn't it? But, but the thing is, you're not on your own. You're not alone in standing against these nations. Rezin and Pekah in the very near future will be gone. You notice that in the reading? Those kingdoms will be destroyed. And so he says, ask me for a sign. Ask God for a sign. And Ahaz says this over there. No, I'm not going to test the Lord by asking for a sign. And Isaiah says, you know, quit, quit fooling around. So Isaiah then says, the Lord will give you a sign. And it is the sign of Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's a reminder of the promise that has been made to God's people all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, I've mentioned just a couple examples, Joshua 1, 5, Deuteronomy 31. I will never leave you or forsake you. 
You know, I'd love to hear weddings say that. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a commitment that God has made to his people. The thing is, not that God will ever back off from that, but that people will forget that. People will get stressed. People will get afraid. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, God will give you a sign. And this baby, Emmanuel, will remind you that God is still with you. Even if you, as an evil king, have not been with God. 700, over 700 years later, this prophecy comes back. That's what I think is really cool about this. That we have a single prophecy that is fulfilled in the time of Ahaz, but then it's fulfilled. And in this time, God's people are, are under Roman domination. And Matthew, writer of the gospel, quotes Isaiah 7 and says, This happened. What happened? The birth of Jesus. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He didn't get into the context, but it's an important context, isn't it? And so the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. You know, the despair of the Jewish people at the time of the Romans, when Jesus was born, they were in total subjugation. They were dominated. They were hopeless. And this child comes into the world. With Ahaz, it was a comforting thought, a reminder that God is still with us. But with Jesus, it is the fullest sense. It isn't just a reminder God is with us, but it is that God has come to be with us, that God was actually present in the world in Jesus Christ. We call this the incarnation. The word incarnation, in, the first syllable there, the I-N, means in. <laughs> incarnation comes from a word meaning flesh. The idea is that Jesus, God's Son, deity, came in the flesh. Not just an idea. You know, and one of the things I think is so important about this is that this is not the absentee landlord that says, well, you know, I know you got a lot of problems with your building. And I hope you, I know you don't have any heat and the water's not running right. And I hope it works out for you. Let it be a challenge to you. This is more the picture of a God who, if I can use the analogy, which is not a great one, but he's rolled up his sleeves and he has gotten personally and directly involved with his people. You know, we might say he's gotten dirty. You know, like you, you got a car, it's broken down at the side of the road and somebody stops by to help you. And they're helping you to the point they're actually doing work on the car and they have gotten dirty. Maybe even, like I often do, scrape knuckles, there's blood. That's what God has done with the Incarnation. So, I'm just going to mention a, a, a few passages here very quickly. 
You know, we, we know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, would have eternal life. But let's get a little bit more. John 1. John 1 is a powerful. Because uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But then about 12, 13 verses later, John says, And the Word became flesh. So, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Because Jesus was there before the creation, right? Because Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. See, that's the beginning part of that chapter. But now Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Philippians 2. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Even though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Why? Because he was deity. He became human. He became flesh. Humbled himself even to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the flesh to be like us, is one of the most foundational, basic points of our faith and of the identity of Jesus. And John, in 1 John 4, brings it another way around. He talks about those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. You cannot be a believer. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a disciple without understanding and believing that Jesus came in the flesh. I want touch a couple of passages from Hebrews because the writer of Hebrews brings us to I think a very interesting idea I mean what does it mean for us that Jesus came in the flesh well as I said I think the idea that he is not an absentee who is disengaged from people But the writer of Hebrews has different images he used. One of, one of them is that Jesus is our high priest. He's making intercession for us with God. But he's coming at it from a very unique strength. So Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's the gospel. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Think about it. We are not, when we pray to Jesus, when we are talking, praying to God through Jesus, we're not getting somebody listening to us saying, well, I'd like to help you, but I just don't understand what you're doing. 
or what you're saying. And I just can't feel very sorry for you because your life is in a mess. And you're suffering and hurting. I don't want any part of it. You know, I mean, that's, that really is kind of the, the Greek-Roman concept of gods. They were disengaged. They were, they were mean. The writer of Hebrews says, no, we have Jesus, our high priest, who empathizes. He feels with us because he understands what it is to be flesh. He knows what it is to go through temptation. He knows what it is to feel suffering. There is nothing that happens to us that didn't happen to him. In fact, if you think about it, there's more that happened to him than has happened to us. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. A little earlier in Hebrews, he wrote, Since the children, that's the descendants of Abraham and ultimately us, have flesh and blood, he too, the Jesus, shared in their humanity so that his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, now just think about it. This is, this is one of those Many passages I have that it's just an absolute favorite. I have seen and talked with many people in my life who are terrified of death. I mean, in one sense, I think almost everybody is afraid to die because we are concerned about the circumstances of our death. It may not be comfortable. It may not be easy. There may be suffering. It may be a violent traffic accident. We may die in a fire. Sorry if I'm giving you bad dreams, but but being afraid of the circumstances is not being afraid of death itself. But what the writer of Hebrews here says that Satan has held people captive for centuries because they were afraid to die. We lost a sister in Christ this week. Some of us have known her for many, many years. And while we share the sense of loss with Adam and Sarah and the rest of her family, we know that Liz did not lose anything. She is no longer bound by that body that has been ravaged by sickness for many, many years. She's free. And that's the writer of Hebrews making the point that we are free. We are no longer in slavery because of the fear of death. We have been set free by Christ because he came in the flesh to live, to teach, and to die. And to be raised from the dead. We are not alone. That's the beauty of understanding this. That Jesus came to be with us 
And he said to his disciples, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. We're going to be talking a little bit more about this in, in the class in the multi-purpose room in a minute and uh, hopefully challenging a little bit more. But I hope when you pray, I mean, when you are talking to our Father through Jesus, that you can approach that throne of grace and mercy in confidence and in faith, knowing that you have an understanding ear, a loving, kind, faithful, a promise to be with you, even at the end of your life. And as we close our time together, we want to encourage everyone here. If you're not yet a Christian, we want to encourage you to think about that. And if we can help you with that, you can talk with me or uh, Jay, Miles, one of the other elders. But for each of us, let's be thinking about what the resurrection and the incarnation really mean. Let's stand as we sing.